Glad to see everybody here tonight. We're going to study a few verses out of the book of James tonight. Uh, James is an interesting book. The writer of the book is not specifically known. There are about four men in the New Testament who are referred to as James. There's James, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles. Then James, the son of Alphaeus, also an apostle. There's also James, the son of Judas, not Iscariot. And James, the Lord's brother. It is the consensus of uh, most biblical scholars that the man who wrote the book was the Lord's brother, James. Some people, including Martin Luther, did not fully accept that the book of James should have been included in the canon of the New Testament. Luther called it a right stroy epistle and not worth very much. He was prejudiced against the work system of Roman Catholicism and, uh, and upset with them and he rebelled against anything that had to do with work. He would not have James in his Bible among the proper books of the canon. And many denominations still follow uh, Martin Luther's approach to James. Probably, most probably, due to the fact that it talks about works being necessary with faith. And those who believe in the religion of faith only, of course, have to do something about the book of James because... The book of James states that salvation is by work and not by faith only. But we need to bring the book of James to its rightful place in God's Word. It is a part of the Bible and it is very beneficial to us today. You might want to open your Bibles to James if you'd like and look at the verse, first verse. Of chapter 1. Here we find that this letter was written to the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad. This would be Jewish Christians who were scattered all over the world because of several oppressions that had come upon them, including the one in AD 70 when Rome destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem and basically ended the Jewish nation. In the second chapter of Acts, we read where there were Jews gathered in Jerusalem on that day for Pentecost out of every nation under heaven. So the Jews had been scattered around the world. In verse 2, look at that verse closely. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Let me read that again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into trials. Is that possible? Can, can you do that? Can I do that? James begins this book with a startling paradox. And a paradox is a statement made that just doesn't seem to make common sense. But... Most people look at this book and call it the book of common sense. 
So how do we solve all of, all of those problems? Uh, since that statement certainly seems contrary to common sense, but it's, it's not a paradox at all. We find that Jesus said almost the same thing that James said here in verse 2. Look in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, beginning in verse 10. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Listen, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persuaded, persecuted the prophets who were before you. The average man on the street does not view trials with joy. In fact, that's the farthest thing from his mind. When oppressions and hardships come his way, he usually gets very upset. I wake up in the morning and the tree has fallen on my house and came through the roof. I'm supposed to have joy. How do we rectify that? What about us? The man on the street doesn't see it that way. But the Christian is seen here as walking along the road to heaven and then, without warning, falls into trials. It's like walking in the dark because we never know when it will happen. We can't see it coming. And the Greek word used here for falls when uh, a, a Christian, when various trials fall into our life indicates that uh, they will be all of a sudden, not expected. We don't know when. It's the same word that's used in Luke 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan when it talks about of the men who fell, of the man who fell among thieves that the Samaritan gave aid to. He fell among the thieves. He didn't expect it. And it was all of a sudden. They suddenly came upon him. And the meaning of the word trials here means affliction. That is a test of character. Now this trial is not a temptation to sin, and we'll go into that later on. But it is a test, a test of our character. How will this pressure of trials cause us to react Testing comes from the outside, but temptation comes from within a person. Look at James chapter 1 down beginning in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Trials become the testing ground of our faith. Jesus suffered on the cross that he might receive joy. 
Let me say that again. Jesus suffered on the cross that he might obtain joy. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, listen, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There are two ways that one can view trials. One, he can count it all joy, as James asks us to do, or he can count it all tragedy. Yeah, all this is bad. Lord, why is this happening to me? Also, one might try to fool himself about trials and hope that somehow they'll just all go away someday. But that won't happen. And also, when James uses the word count here, when he says count it all joy, he basically means to consider it seriously, carefully, and place a value on it. Think about this statement that he has made very seriously in consideration to the meaning of trials. So that we are able, based on the facts, to really understand the value of trials. Therefore, when we come to properly understand their value and benefit, it's only then that we can count them all joy. Note that they are to be counted as all joy, and not just partly joy, but completely joy, without mixing any sorrow or regret. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. 1 Peter 1, 8. Whom having not seen you love, though now... You do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In the midst of any situation, the Christian should have a joy that is so great it can't really be described. A joy that cannot be described. These Jewish Christians were having it rough right now. They had been run out of their homes, losing their means of making a living, being persecuted, and undergoing many trials. This happens at times today when one becomes a Christian. Jesus had warned his disciples that they must count the cost involved in following him before they begin the journey. Matthew sixteen twenty four states, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To deny self, you know as I do, is a very difficult thing. Jesus nowhere in his teaching 
promises a bed of roses or easygoing life. He warned that we would be hated by the world, persecuted for righteousness' sake, cast into prison, left without family or friends, even be killed for the cause of Christ, and experience great tribulation. God put us here on the earth to prepare us for that home which is above. That's our responsibility in this life. As I studied this lesson, my mind went back to the time when I was in the Army. I reflected back to the days of basic training about those five-mile hikes in the heat of the day, running sprints, crawling under barbed wire in the mud, I remember those combat boots became so heavy that I could hardly put one foot in front of the other. I didn't enjoy any of that while it was taking place. It was only after it was over that I realized how much better my physical body had become. That's when it gave me joy. We as Christians are soldiers in the Lord's army. We essentially are now in basic training. We are commanded to take up the whole armor of God, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6. The Apostle Paul considered his life uh, given to Christ as a battle or a war, As he stated at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. But we don't have to wait until it's all over to be joyful. James is trying to persuade us otherwise in living the Christian life. James is teaching us that we should enjoy it now. This short epistle, James, which was written to encourage Christians to be faithful, is full of practical lessons in Christian living. It is just as needful today among Christians as it was in the first century. Because the Christian is just a pilgrim on a sojourn in this world. His home is not here, it's in that new Jerusalem, heaven above, which we will enter after Uh, we go through these trials and toils and struggles in this life. John states in Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We sing that old song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing by. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. So why is it that we have trials anyway? First of all, because there's sin and evil in the world. 1 John 5, 19 states, We know that we are of God. As Christians, we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Christians in the world. Those two classes of people. We receive trials because we live godly lives. 2 Timothy 3.12 states, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will 
suffer persecution. Trials come because Satan is always active. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking who may, whom he may devour. He concentrates on children of God, Christians. We receive trials because we can't get to heaven without being tested. That's just part of living the Christian life. Because of our weaknesses and immaturities, we receive trials. Because they prove our faith and make us stronger where we can overcome even greater trials in the future. Think for a minute how Moses viewed it. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, seeming... Seeming... read. Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Listen, for he looked for a reward. Moses understood what undergoing trials would give him someday. Notice two phrases in, in this, that he chose rather to suffer affliction. He wasn't forced to do it. He chose to do it. It was entirely his decision to suffer. And then the next phrase, for he looked for the reward, toward the reward. Moses understood the wisdom of the statement, counted all joy thousands of years before James wrote it. Moses could see past the trials of his time that there would be joy in the future. Therefore, we should rejoice that we, as children of God, are counted worthy to suffer shame and undergo trials in His service, because great is our reward in heaven after we have passed the test. I'd like to read again Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We must trust the Lord to help us during the time of trials because the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Sometimes these trials can lead us into temptation when we start blaming things on the Lord. Lord, why, why are you allowing all these things to happen to me? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 states, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Folks, 
we're very special in the sight of God. He will take care of us. We are very, very precious to Him. And let us count it all joy. This brings to mind a familiar verse of Scripture found in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In the preceding chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11, we have a list of uh, a few of these witnesses who are watching us as we live our lives as God's servants today. People like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and, and Sarah, who through trials in their day and obedient faith pleased God. These are all witnessing what we do today for the Lord. May it be said of us what was said of them in verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Also, while studying this lesson, I thought about the Olympics, which will be held in the next few weeks. I considered those athletes who prepare diligently for their special event. They train strenuously, sometimes through blood, blood and sweat and, and tears, and to prepare themselves for that event. But they don't fret over all of that effort that they put forth to get themselves ready because what they can see in their mind every day is that awards ceremony. And standing on that stand and having that gold medal placed around their neck. That's exactly the way James is asking us to consider the trials and the reward that comes to us later. Go ahead and take that awful tasting medicine now because you'll feel great tomorrow. We all have what we call our comfort zone. James is telling us that God requires that we get out of that comfort zone sometimes. My, I don't know about you, but my comfort zone includes rest, contentment, no unexpected problems, good health, and peace with everybody. But Jesus assures us that it ain't always going to be that way even though we would like it to be. Now move on down to verse 3 in James chapter 1, where James states, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. James now begins to tell us why trials are valuable and necessary for the Christian maturity. The word knowing that this testing is good means understanding gained through personal experience and observation, which is the opposite of having a theory or hearsay. Knowing is having experienced 
uh, the, the item. For example, a man reads a book on how to play baseball. When he's finished reading the book, he has a lot of facts in his head and theory about how to play baseball, but he still doesn't know how to play baseball. He must have some practical experience to be able to accomplish a skill. It takes practice. Uh, it takes actually doing it. We can't just read about it. James is appealing to the practical experiences in this case. The word proving gives the picture of one going through the crucible or furnace to separate the genuine sterling from the dross. When silver is mined, it has impurities mixed in it. It is melted so that when it becomes liquid, the impurities will float to the top as dross and be scraped off, leaving nothing but pure sterling silver. James is saying that trials constitute the furnace through which the Christian's faith must pass in order to prove its authenticity. And this process uh, brings about the patience, which really is the staying power of the Christian. Look at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, Listen, for all patience and long-suffering, how? With joy. For all patience and long-suffering with joy. You know, after all others have gone the way of sin and weakness, the obedient Christian still stands a faithful soldier, steadfast, not yielding to outside forces or pleasures, but turns them into greatness and glory and joy. Therefore, the benefit of trials is to give us additional strength to bear, to bear still greater trials in the future and conquer them. Now, look at verse 4, James chapter 1. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking nothing. It takes hard work and days of patience to become a good piano player. Patience doesn't happen overnight either. Everything that is worthwhile takes a lot of time and hard work. Today, too many people are looking for a pamphlet which gives ten easy ways to spiritual maturity. But there just aren't any shortcuts to that crown of life. It's like <clears throat> when you work a jigsaw puzzle. <clears throat> it's not finished and it's not done until that last piece is put in place. The Christian who attains this perfect patience stands steadfast and is not missing anything. He is complete. James, having dealt with the external trials and what we've been talking about so far are external trials, things that come to us 
from outside. He explains now how one's internal trials causes him to commit sin. Look on down at verse 13 in James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Here James describes the inner trial, the desire or the temptation, that which leads one into sin. Now an outward trial can lead one into sin too, but the inward trial is that temptation which really gets closer to sin. Where do these desires come from? Certainly not from God. Just as you could not blame God for the trials or testing of an outward nature, neither can He be blamed for these inward trials or temptations. They simply come from human weakness that we all have. People use many ways to excuse their sins. One is by placing them on another person. The blame. What was Adam's excuse when confronted by God in the garden? He said, you know that woman you gave to be with me? She gave it to me. He blamed Eve, but he wouldn't even call her by name, that woman. We also can try to excuse sin by pleading ignorance. I just didn't know any better. Or by blaming our background. You know that I was molested as a child. Or by attributing our actions to our environment. Everybody else is doing it. By blaming our parents. I was never taught any better. I don't know any better. And also we can excuse sins by blaming our circumstances. I live in a bad neighborhood. There's a lot of bad things going on. Or we can try to excuse them by crying like Flip Wilson did when he used the phrase, the devil made me do it. Or we can try to excuse it by claiming that we just couldn't help it. I'm just weak. And that's the way I am. I can't help it. A sinner who makes these statements is just not bold enough to blame God for directly causing his sins, but is saying that God is responsible for my sins in an indirect way. He put me in all these different positions. God might not be responsible for my sins, but then again, He is, you see. God gave me those evil parents. God caused me to live in this part of town. God made me weak. And God gave me this woman. It's God's fault. There's a vast difference in God's using or permitting trials and in His sending them directly upon a person. He uses external trials for our benefit to make us stronger spiritually, as we've already learned, but never leads or causes one to fall into sin. Look at James 1, chapter 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires 
and enticed. James now gives the progression man goes through in committing sin. First, he says, man is drawn away by his own desires or lust. The word lust means a covetous, strong desire of the soul to obtain something sinful. It's a bad word. The phrase drawn away is a metaphor taking, taken from fishing. For example, a fish is swimming along in the stream, minding his own business, when suddenly there before him he sees a juicy, dangling worm. From inside comes a strong desire to eat that worm. Nothing's happened yet. He hasn't done anything wrong. He has only been tempted. Soon he is swimming more closely around the worm. Still no problem. But then suddenly his inward desire becomes so strong that zap. He swallowed that worm and it had a hook in it. And he's trapped. The temptation has led to sin. There's nothing wrong with the water. Nothing wrong with the hook, the string, nor the worm. What was wrong was the desire of the fish that he had that caused him to get hooked. It came from within. This is the same thing that happened to Eve in the garden. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. Who was to blame for this, Eve or the devil? The devil caused her to be tempted. Of course, it was Eve. Eve had the right of choice. She could choose to eat of the fruit or not. But she exercised that power of choice and chose to eat that fruit and committed sin. External circumstances have no power in and of themselves to cause a person to sin. No matter how intense that desire becomes to commit a sin, it doesn't have to happen. Man sins because of internal lusts not being controlled and thus commits sin from the inside. May God help us to be careful in our everyday life, to be on the lookout for the bait Satan is using to entice us. If we will think on things spiritual, we won't get caught in Satan's snare. Philippians 4.8 states, Finally, brethren, this is the thing. This is it. Finally. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. Thank you very much.